Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's podcast was recorded on March 20th at about 1pm London time. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Ivy Tours, for their continued support across Series 2 of this podcast. And if you would like to uh, get a discount on any of their books or any of the Bloomsbury books from bloomsbury.com, uh, in relation to their Middle Eastern politics section, use our discount code TALKINGIBT19. That's TALKINGIBT19. And if you, um, if you or anyone you know is interested in doing a Master's in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, be sure to check out prob- the, that exact Master's that we have on offer here at Royal Holloway University of London from September 2019. If you want to find out anything that we do here, Uh, on the podcast or any upcoming episodes follow us at terror underscore podcast or also follow me at morrison underscore jf anyway on with today's podcast it is my great pleasure to have on today's pod julia pierce who is a lecturer in social psychology and security studies at king's college london julia's research addresses issues of risk perception risk communication and terrorism and her research has identified the dangers of both under and over responding to risk and how communication with the public should be central uh, to governmental risk responses. So, Julia, thank you so much for being on, on today's pod. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. So, as I said in the introduction, your, your research primarily looks at risk perception, risk communication and terrorism. How did you get into this area, focusing on this, on this topic? Well, I think... When we think about uh, terrorism as a form of communication, um, obviously um, the aim of the actors is not just in respect of the people who are immediately caught up in that. It's about sending a wider message to the public. It's about changing behaviour. So as somebody who came back from a background of having an interest in uh, risk perception and the impact it had on behaviours, terrorism seemed uh, an obvious uh, topic in which to explore some of those issues. And how do you go about doing your research? How, what kind of approaches? As we said, you're a social psychologist. Um, so what way have you gone about doing your research? So, so we do it in a number of ways. Um, thankfully, um, this type of incident is relatively rare, particularly so, so a lot of my early work in this area was looking at terrorism, specifically using uh, chemical, biological, radiological Uh, agents, um, which was something that we were particularly interested in preparing for um, because of the fact that it had uh, uh, that uh, lack of familiarity with it. Um, But as a consequence of that, uh, much of the work needs to be scenario driven. So you're actually asking people about behavioural intention. Um, You're looking at baseline understandings that can then be potentially shaped by communication. So we use a range of tools from uh, focus groups, surveys, uh, we've put people through exercises where they've been going through a decontamination tent and we have a little waterproof uh, set of questions that we're getting them to fill out as they're experiencing it. And again, and obviously with much work in this area, you also look at existing case studies, what's happened in the past, how people have responded. So a real range, I think, it's important with these uh, low likelihood events to really triangulate the sources that you're using. And one of the great things about your research, and there are numerous great things about your research, <laughs> one you of much. them is... That you're not just that you focus on. You compare across countries as well. We do. Why? Uh, 
What has been your finding about, has there been any key differences between risk perception and risk communication across uh, the countries that you've looked at? Yeah, so we've looked at we've looked at a number of different countries. Um, I should say uh, the work has mostly been European focused. Mm. Um, that's uh, mostly as a consequence, really, of trying to look at uh, developing communications that can be implicated across different countries, different contexts. Mm. And of course, there are going to be contextual differences um, both across Europe, but also globally. So you will find quite different responses in different areas as a consequence of their prior experience, for example, of terrorism, and also their relationship with the authorities that are communicating. So one of the things that has come out of our research looking, for example, if you compare responses in the UK and Poland, uh, there tend to be lower levels of trust in some of the emergency response community in Poland, and therefore you uh, find that people are less inclined to follow official guidance. Um, in the UK, we have relatively high levels, not as much as in Denmark, which is the most recent mm-hmm. comparative country. So, so you're looking at, when you're looking at the way that people respond to communication that's designed to influence their perception of risk, you're not just looking at the specifics of the event and their experience of terrorism, you're also looking at the way they respond to the people that are communicating with them. And so in an event like that, say like that Polish example that you put forward, Who's like? Are there other organisations, other individuals who are more trusted that can be putting the message across in their place, or what's what's the recommendation? So, so, so the recommend there are a couple of recommendations really. One is to develop relationships ahead of things happening. Mm-hmm. So, if you have an awareness that you have a trust problem, mm-hmm. explore some of the reasons for that and some of the things that you can do to build trust um, in peacetime, if you like. Um, there are uh, differences between organisations. Um, so, again, to come back to a UK context, there tends to be greater trust in healthcare okay. professionals. However, there's nonetheless uh, an expectation that... So uh, you would expect, following a terrorist attack, to have communication from politicians, despite the fact that I'm sure you won't be surprised they score somewhat lower in the trust stakes than some of the other responding communities. There, there is still an expectation, and it's still important that they communicate um, so, so it's not a question of, of taking a decision because you have low trust levels not to try to do it, mm-hmm. but it's to recognise some of the challenges around that. It's to uh, verify the content that you're producing with more trusted sources. So one of the things you can use uh, are, are trusted third-party mm-hmm. communicators, and if they're putting out the same kind of messages, then that can be helpful. So there's a consistency across exactly. with the trusted and the, exactly. the less trusted. Exactly. I'm not going to say untrusted. Precisely. So what are, when we look at the UK, um, anyone who's travelled uh, within the UK in recent, in recent years would be aware of the Run, Hide, Tell uh, campaign. And this is something that you and your, your colleagues have looked at specifically. And you've, you've looked at it both in relation to the use of film as well as, as leaflets. And we've got, and we've got that a, a comparison with other countries, with yes. Denmark specifically there. Could you tell us about some of your core findings specifically in relation to that? Yeah, so so the, the Run Hotel campaign I think is an interesting one in that it represented quite a shift in uh, communicating with the public policy. Mm-hmm. So prior to, so, so that campaign was originally developed to uh, be a piece of communication that would be rolled out through security services. So um, it was used for training in large corporations, um, places like Canary Wharf. Their, mm-hmm. their security staff would be uh, given this information but it, it was in a very protected way. So we'll tell the people that we trust not to be scared by this information and then let them uh, do some kind of onward dissemination. Um, following the Bataclan attack, there was a recognition that this information would be helpful to be 
out in the public domain. And so for the first time, really, um, this type of large-scale public communication kind of pre-event communication campaign went out. So as you rightly said, it went out both as a leaflet and as a film, and we were interested in the differential impact of those because we were aware, for example, that there'd been some leafleting campaigns at train stations, so we knew that people wouldn't necessarily have seen both. Um, And also, uh, as time moved on, the police were starting to tweet the advice, so so it was appearing in all sorts of different forms. Uh, But in terms of our our core uh, research aims and findings, I think we were interested in two things, really. One was this issue around does this type of communication scare the public? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where it was very useful, going back to the point you made about having different comparative countries. In Denmark, they don't have the background uh, of comms that we do. So whilst there hadn't been comms specifically about uh, marauding firearms attacks, in the UK we have a tradition of communication around looking out for suspicious packages, for example, the CSA-type communications have been running for many years. Uh, whereas in Denmark, they just don't have that kind of communication so we thought it would be a very useful way of understanding in different contexts what does this type of communication scare the public uh, and more specifically does the uh, advice work in terms of of encouraging people to change their behavior so in terms of the key findings from the baseline study and we actually uh, conducted a number of studies looking at this campaign um, the key findings are that it doesn't scare the public. Uh, When we looked in both countries, people thought that the likelihood of a terrorist attack occurring in the next five years was quite high, but they also recognised that their personal risk of being caught up in that was quite low. So actually it seemed quite a reasoned um, risk perception response to to the threat that they were facing at the time. Um, And that didn't change irrespective of whether they were exposed to communications about uh, terrorism or not. Um, what was interesting was it did, however, uh, produce a more positive perception regarding security services' ability to deal with these types of uh, uh, attack, uh, including the fact that there was a greater perception, there was greater trust in police advice to keep people safe, even though our research, we hadn't said anything about the quality of the advice, we'd simply passed on the advice, and just the fact that they were putting it out made people feel that the police were able to produce advice to keep them safe. Um, In terms of the impact of the guidance on behavioural responses, for me, I think the most interesting thing that came out was its impact on things we don't want people to do. So we were interested in, you know, will this make people run? Will it make them understand what they need to do while they're hiding? Will it make people be more likely to contact the police? And actually reported levels of intention to do these things are quite high um, anyway but there are a number of things that people may do uh, during such an incident which could potentially put themselves and others in danger which may be a a less uh, intuitive so to give a concrete example during uh, so so we ran through a scenario that mirrored the run hide tell stages and during the hide uh, stage we've, we've told participants that they've been separated from somebody that they were with during the incident so uh all the way throughout they're they're separated from their loved person mm-hmm. and when they get to the tell stage we tell them that that person uh they haven't been reunited with yet and one of the options uh, that we gave them was to try and call the person which i think is a very instinctive behavior if you're separated from somebody i want to get hold of them see if we're okay and we know sadly from previous instances that actually people have been hiding and mm-hmm. a perpetrator has heard a phone go off so this is potentially something that's a really dangerous behaviour, but understandably an instinctive one. And what we found, even though uh, the run, hide, tell advice didn't specifically 
address that. It didn't say don't do this. It did show people being quiet, putting their phones on silent uh, and hiding. And, and just that in and of itself was enough to really substantially reduce people's intention to phone that person. So, so, so to my mind, that was probably one of the most important findings. And I think moving forward, something that really needs to be thought about how we can address both what we want people to not do yeah. as well as what we want them to do. Um, so what, was this consistent across all demographics then? Was this consistent across, say, all age groups or was it a, a specific, any specific grouping who were... Yeah, so that there were some demographic differences. Um, my interest has always primarily been in uh, the impact of uh, perception rather mm. than demographic quality, mm. simply because when you're conducting a large public campaign, it's impossible to target at particular groups, although I agree it's useful to know mm -hmm. what they will do. So we found um, gender uh, there were some differences um, in terms. Interestingly, one of the one of the cross national differences uh, that that. Um, has always stuck in my mind is that the so so we set up the start of the scenario as I say that you've been separated from someone you're stood outside a shop waiting for your shopping companion and and the incident starts Danish men were most likely to go and try and rescue their companion there was a Danish male chivalry um, effect that uh, didn't occur in the UK context okay oh UK men but that's a good thing from a from a self protective point yes. of view. Yeah. I don't I don't want to suggest that that's that that we want to encourage that. But um, yeah, there is definitely a that, that there are some differences between particular demographic groups. Oh, it's interesting. And so, from this research, what do you feel are the 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 core recommendations that come out of this external compot we've talked about already? What other core recommendations did you have for when we think about developing? pre-event pre communication and these preparatory communications. So, so to me, the cool things that would come out of it would be, um, there are a whole host of reasons that you may or may not want to communicate with the public ahead of an event, and I think there's some important considerations around securitization of society, yeah. some of the other um, unintended consequences of communications. But if one of your considerations is that the public are unable to cope with these types of communications, then that shouldn't be factoring into the mix. So I think one of the take-home recommendations is you need to be less concerned about scaring the public. And it has, I think it has a really a number of really important consequences, this fear of scaring the public. It can make people reticent to communicate, which reduces trust, which, as we've spoken about, is really important. Mm -hmm. You also have other information going out in a vacuum, which may be problematic. Um, so, so if your considerations are based on... Oh, and sorry, the third thing is it also encourages very much a, a command and control, a focus on providing reassurance. So I would say, whilst it's obviously important to provide reassurance, don't do that to the detriment of clear, actionable guidance. And so... We, we briefly spoke before about the leaflet and the film mm -hmm. campaign, and one of the things we found was that the leaflet was less effective mm -hmm. than the film. Now, arguably, that could be because the film is more engaging, but when we ran a second study with text-based advice, we could make the leaflet not only as effective but more effective than the film if we reduced the amount of space that... The, and, and again, I, I should be clear, this was the first leaflet that was produced for Run, Hide, Tell, mm -hmm. and so actually what's going out now has developed and evolved from that but the original leaflet the entire backside of it almost was dedicated to saying please don't be scared the police know what they're doing these things happen very infrequently and because there was such a large focus on that there was only half a sentence on what each of the pieces of advice meant and if you reduce that reassurance because we know that it, people aren't so scared you can still have one sentence at the top you suddenly have space 
to put the kind of information in that changes behaviour. Yeah. So that's a core recommendation. And how does this compare? So we, you started off saying that you were, you were looking not necessarily at the at the type of attacks that we're talking about now, but mm. you were talking about radiological terrorism. Are there? Do you, are you finding that the results are, are similar now? I know it was a slightly different focus in the in the in the research, but are you were you seeing similar things uh, when you were looking? So I think so that so there are similarities. I think the difference with the work um, that we've conducted looking at radiological and biological threats is it's about pre-preparing communications to release during an event. Mm -hmm. So it's pre-preparation yeah. rather than pre-event mm -hmm. um, communication. Um, and I think the reason for that is simply because the likelihood is so so much yeah. lower. Um, and I think one of the core differences is the uncertainty. So when it comes to a radiological event one of the things that we've seen looking at uh, past um, mostly accidental releases actually um, so there's a very um, well-known case within the risk perception literature of uh, back in 1987 in Guyana in Brazil there was a radiological incident in which four people died and 112,000 people sought uh, medical um, checks to see if they had been affected. Now, on a surface level, that can sound um, as if what we're talking about is a panicky mm -hmm. public. But again, we were talking about a public who didn't understand the risk. We're talking about radiation sickness um, is really problematic because if you look at the symptoms, you're looking at reddening of skin, you're looking at nausea, you're looking at things that can happen as a consequence of anxiety. So people can actually, so of that 112,000, it's been speculated around 5,000 actually had symptoms so these aren't necessarily people who um, are foolish to think these these are people who are genuinely scared and concerned and don't understand uh, the uh, geographically bound nature of that incident mm -hmm. so so with that type of um, attack I think um, were it to happen there would be some issues around the fact um, that possibly it will be much smaller scale than people expect because people's understandings of radiation are informed by things like Fukushima, Chernobyl, you know, larger scale incidents. Um, and so actually it, it can be about, back to the point that you made in the introduction, managing an under-response as well as an over-response if people don't understand it uh, to be um, of the nature of the sorts of event that they would think it would be. Um, and conversely, you could end up with a lot more low-risk patients. So if you have a, a, an attack of the sort that the Run, Hide, Tell campaign is uh, designed to deal with, you know whether you've been caught up in that incident or not. Mm -hmm. So that's the primary difference. Um, one, of the, what, one of the things that I see in modern-day risk uh, communication is the role of social media and social media platforms. Um, how, do you, how do you view the role that like we see platforms like Facebook utilising uh, their own uh, risk communication mm -hmm. and their own check-ins and stuff like that. How, how do you view the, and how does your research view that, that the role that they can play uh, in this regard, external from the state actors? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? it, it as with all things social media, it can bring both benefits and problems. Um, I haven't conducted uh, any research specifically on uh, social media in respect of um, state use of it, um, although we know that uh, there is a tendency to move towards online communications. The research that we have conducted suggests that multiple platforms are always a good idea in terms of maximising reach. And we have established that there, um, again, going back to being a bit of a stuck record on the issue of trust, 
one of the things that's problematic about social media is it is so ephemeral. So leaflet type communications, although they seem terribly old fashioned, have a credibility to them because uh, the, the public tell us uh, that um, actually the government wouldn't put this in writing in print if it was something that they didn't believe to be true. So I think there's still a role for other types. Um, in terms of, of what you were talking about um, with the checking in, we're, do, we're doing um, a piece of work at the moment, which um, is a bit early doors to talk about, but looking at pro-social responses to, from the public to, to um, terrorist events. And so we've been looking precisely um, at things like use of um, social media for offering people um, somewhere to stay, um, all of those sorts of things. So I think I'll have more to say about that yeah. in the future. But yeah. It's definitely something that, uh, that you can see the, the, the add-on there. And I know that, that, you, that you, your research hasn't been looking at that specific, but you can, you can mm. definitely see the utility of it. It's when we're looking at this as well, and when we're looking at the risk communication or pre-event uh, situation, and I know it's not really something that's, that's discussed uh, in depth within the articles here, but do we need to consider the timing uh, in relation to, uh, does, the, does the communication change at different times, say, say around anniversaries, for example, where there'd be heightened, potentially heightened awareness of, 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 of terrorism risk? example if, if it's say a big commemoration of 7-7 or something yeah. on the Vatican or something can risk risk communication change around then? yes I think so and I think I'm cautious to it, it I want to I want to suggest that it's an opportunity for communication mm. but that I'm uncomfortable with the word yeah. opportunity but we are all bombarded constantly with messages about all sorts of things and unequivocally people are going to attend more to messages um, in the immediate aftermath of something happening, as you say, if there's an anniversary. Um, and I think it's, it, to my mind, it comes back to, to the question of what is it that you're trying to do with the communication. And, and actually, if you're trying to do something that you need people to understand ahead of time because their instinctive response um, is likely to put themselves in more danger, then I think it makes good sense to, 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 to use those um, occasions uh, on which to make those communications but I mean there's all sorts of I, I mostly focus on risk and protective health behavior but but as I alluded to earlier there's also a whole other set of communications and you have to think about things like social cohesion and um, the impact that your communications are having on communities. And what's been the biggest challenge for you and your your fellow researchers in carrying out this kind of research because it's not easy research to do. Yeah, I think I think so. So there were there were practical challenges and there were ethical challenges. Um, one of the earliest challenges we faced was persuading the ethics committee that we weren't going to terrify the public yeah. by going out and talking to them about whether they were yeah. scared or not. So you so you end up in this that that there was lots of evidence to suggest that um, people aren't as panicky as uh, as may commonly be uh, thought um, but certainly when so when we first started doing the work uh, looking at radiological terrorism we had a film that we made it was a bit like the the kind of crime watch please sleep well type film at the end from the head of the unit explaining you know reiterating this was a scenario and whilst it was important to understand these issues we didn't want people to be scared and um, so there were some of those practical issues and um, there were issues around the fact um, again as I mentioned earlier we're generally talking about how people intend to behave and it's a real challenge, and of course, 
there were also challenges if you're conducting research asking people about how they behaved in the past because our memories are also constructions and um, all you can really do is try to use multiple sources multiple types um, when we're asking people to think about these types of scenarios we try to use quite immersive research tools so I mentioned before about an emergency exercise but the the piece of focus group research that we were just talking about uh, with the radiological terrorism we used uh, film clips that were TV production quality of news footage and things so you try to find ways of getting people to put themselves in the position but inevitably um, what we think we're going to do and what we actually do there's a gap between that yeah. and when it comes to the, the research process and drawing on like within this kind of area while we're all the listeners in this podcast and the, the other guests in this podcast we primarily focus on terrorism and counterterrorism but we draw on other dis- we draw on other areas where there has been research so what what areas within risk perception have you drawn on external from uh, from terrorism risk perception how has that influenced you so we would draw on um natural hazards research there's a lot to be learned from other types of disasters and extreme events um we would draw on um the the protective health behaviors literature so a a lot of the theory that we draw from comes from fairly traditional health psychology a lot of which has been applied to things like smoking cessation so so i would say probably health and then the disasters and emergency preparedness world would be the two that we bring into the world of terrorism and what's the reaction being like uh, among governments and among other um other entities who would be involved in risk communication to you to your research has it been have they drawn on it positively have they been engaging with it and has it, do you feel that it's changed uh, do, do you see any of your recommendations coming through yes so so i th- I, I think so i think what we've generally found actually is the organisations that are tasked with dealing with these type of events, they want to get it right. They want to be able to embed the research. They're very open to having um, conversations. Um, we are also very open to listening to the practical constraints because it's one thing to develop something in a in an academic environment and it's another thing to apply it in practice when there may be, I don't know, for example, political pressures that, that shape the way that people are able to do things. It's not just about the considerations that we're testing. Um, but no, so... Um, we partner a lot with Public Health England, um, who are the UK organisation tasked with uh, responding to uh, the type of event that would involve um, chemical, biological, uh, radiological um, elements. Um, we also do quite a lot of work with the Cabinet Office looking at national risk planning. So yes, I think we've been very fortunate in that we have um, had people and with the police as well actually people a lot of organizations who have been very open and actually some of the i mentioned before some of the other countries in europe that have been quite hesitant about doing this kind of work with the public are starting to get in contact and say we understand you're doing research in this area can we so so it's been i think very useful to have things like the danish case study where we can say this country is probably a bit more closer to what you're doing because people are aware that there's a lot of work happening in the uk but they also see us as quite um, I was going to say peculiar, quite different in our experience of um, terrorism and our response to it. So it's a, I think it's been very useful having that cross um, national comparative element in our research. And within the UK case, what has been the, what have been the key changes in relation to risk communication uh, 
kind of over the past few years or where like we've obviously we were talking about earlier on this now there is this the not giving the information of trying to put people at ease and stuff and, mm. and through your research you're able to show that yeah you don't necessarily need this and you can concentrate on on what would be expected but other than that what other key changes have you seen so i think so so the primary one is that willingness to communicate ahead of time um there's also i think there's been a change in terms of recognizing the need to think about different population groups so if you look at the run hotel campaign when it first came out it came out very quickly as i say it was based on a training tool that had been used in offices but um, last year, a version came out that was designed um, for release at schools. And so, uh, and again, that was obviously off the back of um, the Manchester attack. And so I think there, there, is, there is increasing recognition that it's not a one-size-fits-all with the communication, and that can be quite a challenge. Um, but certainly, I think there's an awful, lot of, an awful lot of communications work happening, and that I would say probably 2016 onwards. There's been quite a change in the in in a, in a very proactive reaching out to the public. And um, with regards to the Danish case now, when you were working with uh, academics from the University of Aarhus, and um, do you from from talking to them? And I know the the publication is just coming just come out now. But what would the recommendations? specifically for Denmark then um, because it, it was such a different setup or uh, yeah so what were the, the core recommendations for that so so I know that um, my colleagues at Aarhus were talking with the Danish security services and I think it's about it's about recognizing um, that whatever you do needs to be proportionate to the threat so it's really about um, identifying the extent to which that they feel um, that it would be appropriate to to make this kind of communication, but actually the core recommendation is if you're if you're at the point where you're thinking about doing this and concerned, go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. And actually, it it was interesting. Um, we tested a couple of UK um, campaigns in Denmark, and the public responses are really quite similar. They're, they they come from a different baseline, um, but in terms of the shift, the the things that change as a consequence of the communication, it's very similar. So our key recommendation is actually continue, you know, coordinate with your British colleagues because there is some useful learning because they've spent a lot of time testing and developing these messages. And so, of the British, um, do you feel that they've learned a lot from the experiences during the Troubles, for example, or is it is this is this learning coming more from from modern day experiences um, as a as a the modern day security threat? Yeah. Um, in all honesty, I don't know for sure. I mean, I think I think I know that there has been learning, but from a comms point of view, um, I th I think I think the primary issue has been less about the risk communication and more around the 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 shifting and and the development of the uh, encouraging reporting behaviours mm -hmm. type work. I think there's a, th a clear through line. Uh, with that type of communication, uh, which started um, when there were the um, the the mainland okay. attacks um, during the eighties, um, but I don't honestly, I don't honestly yeah. know for no, sure the answer to that. No, it was one. just something that, yeah. that, that came to my head, and yeah, it would be it would be something interesting to, to have. It would. It's um, if there is a young researcher out there who's thinking about engaging in in risk communication and risk perception research. 
And what advice would you give them? What do, what's the what are the key the key lessons that you've learned um, that that you would give them for for setting out on this in this area? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I don't know that my advice for somebody setting out in this specific area would be any different to the kind of advice I'd give to anybody embarking on any academic uh, research career uh, in terms of, I, th I think it would be fairly generalist advice around, you know, honing your research question, establishing decent methodology, good supervisory team. All of it, I, it all seems a bit bland and generic, but I don't think there's something specific to this area that I think that they would need to be armed with in order to move uh, into it beyond the fact that I would like to encourage young researchers yeah. to do more work in this area I think there's lots that still needs to be done um, and so I'd say come and talk to me actually yeah. there you go that'll be my advice come and talk right. to me and I will I will try and encourage you to do work in this space because I think it's important yeah. and interesting oh it's it's, it's definitely interesting and, and it's, it's definitely important and one of the things that Constantine that comes up across different areas of this podcast is we're looking at how do we measure success. Mm. And that's a key, a key part when it comes to risk communication. So how do we measure success in risk communication strategies? As with all areas, um, I think it's quite difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. um, you can... I haven't seen good systematic measurement. If you're, if you're talking about... Um, some of the campaigns, uh, so if you take something, so, so carry on with the theme of run, high tell. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, um, I've seen cases that have been flagged of people who have um, been aware of the advice and have changed their behaviour. So there was an example with the um, Seuss um, attacks um, in Tunisia where uh, it was actually an off-duty policeman, policewoman was on holiday there um, with her mother. And she had been through the training. This is before it had gone out to the general public. Um, and she barricaded them into a room in the hotel and they survived mm -hmm. because she understood that she didn't know where the source of the danger was and she didn't run. So um, there, there, is, there, is, there is indicative um, evidence that these things can be helpful. That you can look at, um, and one of the things I'm really keen on doing, I know there's been some research in the States looking at behavioural responses um, to marauding gun attacks in general that seems to have established that running is a, an effective strategy. But I don't think, to, to my mind, um, we can we can look at trying to shift behaviours, but it, it, it's more about what's the outcome of those behaviours and are our are, are, are lives saved or are people um, more willing to... So, so some risk communication um, is about people's willingness to go back to work, people's willingness to use... Um, transport systems again if things happen um so you can look at things like a return to normal normality and how long it takes but of course you can't have that sliding doors experience to know what would have happened had you not had the same kind of communication so i think as with all things it's quite difficult to put metrics yeah. on it yeah. um but i think all you can do is look look at look at behaviors that have been enacted look at if the if they've been problematic if there were less of those once people are aware of it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's terribly important with all of this not to drift into a position where it almost becomes like victim blaming. Yeah. And that's really important that somebody who is caught up and is not able to protect themselves, it's not because they've been foolish or uncareful. And there are lots of circumstances in which you just have no choice. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think it's about trying to um, enable people where they can make choices to make choices that are more likely to keep themselves safe. No, it's it it is it, it's it's such a tricky tricky aspect of any of these pieces of research to and whether we're looking at uh, risk perception of individuals' engagement in um, in terrorist activity or when we're looking at success in relation to to risk communication to men that. Well, often what you're trying to get at is what's not happened. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. So, so it, absolutely, if you're trying to, whether you're in prevention, interdiction, mitigation, all of it is really about stopping something from happening. Yeah. And that it's quite hard to measure. Yeah. Oh, completely. Completely. It's so tricky. And um, we've heard a bit about where your, your research is going, the future research. Um, off the back of the of say the the prime project specifically, that's the one that was uh, the the UK and Denmark. Yes. Um, what's what would be where where is this research that that specific part of research where do, where is that directing you next? And will it be continuing with comparison with Denmark? Yeah. So I hope to. So so Aarhus have been such a brilliant project partner. Um, I will be very disappointed if I don't. Um, continue to work for them purely from the point of view that you know it's been such a pleasure to work with them um but i think so we have a number of um, initiatives we want to take well we very recently um and i haven't finished analyzing the data yet have conducted a one-year follow-up study um based on the prime data because of course one of the we talk about methodological challenges in this area what you tend to do is you give people a piece of information and see how it affects what they're going to do but of course if you're caught up in a uh, terrorist attack nobody's given you a leaflet as you walk through the door so what we've done is we've gone back to people a year later to see whether the impacts of the um, communications hold mm-hmm. over time mm-hmm. um, so um, we're working on that together at the moment the pro-socials behavior uh, work that I was telling you about looking um, so much work focuses on the public as a problem mm-hmm. we thought that um, having spent a number of years looking at that we'd actually spend a bit of time looking at the public as part of the um, solution um and so um, we're also working on and um, developing some ideas through that so i think yeah lots lots has come out of um it was a very fruitful research collaboration and i think taking off in a number of directions and um f- for my mind it is about pinning down what are these problem behaviors so i i really um anybody listening who wants to collaborate with me on that that's something that i want to take forward that we're not just looking at um, us speculating about potential problem behaviours, but really starting to do some in-depth analysis of um, previous incidents to see what people did and um, the sorts of behaviours that it, where it may be a bit counterintuitive. So you need to think about priming people ahead of time. And from across all of your research projects, um, uh, was there any result that stands out as being most surprising? Is there anything that you were not not particularly anticipating? I think, I think at the beginning, we had such a strong expectation with those um, radiological type scenarios that people would be more alarmed about them. I think we were surprised. Uh, I was surprised when I that was that there was the first set of um, uh, interviews that I did in this area. I was surprised at how. Um, people it wasn't that I was surprised there were people able to talk about it mm. but it was about the fact that um, they they were less alarmed I think than I thought they would be um, I think one of the things that really struck me 
at the time was how bad we are at thinking about other people in relation to ourselves. So we think we're very capable mm-hmm. and we think other people aren't. So uh, I remember one of the first um, focus groups afterwards, somebody saying that was really interesting, really good session, but you mustn't talk to the public about this, you know. And this is a, you know, a, a focus group with the public. Yeah. But people, nobody thinks of themselves as the general public. And so for me, that was a real penny-dropping moment in terms of my understanding of the world is that we all think that we're a lot more capable than other people are. Oh, that's it. I think that's a good way to finish up. I think that's... Uh, we are... Uh, but we, we should believe that we're more capable than, than, uh, than, than, than others. It's, uh, it's, a nice, it's, a nice way to, it's a nice way to be. Um, so we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Julia. And um, I would highly recommend any of our listeners to read uh, and any of Julia's work. The, the prime one that we were talking about there is titled uh, Communicating with the Public About Marauding Terrorist Firearms Attack Results from a Survey Experiment on Factors Influencing Attention to Run High Tell in the UK and Denmark. I was going to say a snappy <laughs> title there from the team, but that. But, but also that uh, radiological terrorism research, communicating uh, with the public following radiological terrorism, uh, results from a series of focus groups and national surveys in Britain and Germany. Some really fascinating research there, um, Julia, and I'm sure our listeners will be following that with with great interest. So thank you so much for being on today's podcast. I'd like to thank, as always, our sponsors, IB Taurus. Remember. Use that discount code, um, TALKINGIBT19, uh, if, uh, go on to bloomsbury.com and you'll be able to get that 35% discount from the Politics and Middle East Studies books. Um, and also check out our Masters in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies uh, offered here at Royal Holloway University of London from September 2019. And follow us on Twitter at terror underscore podcast. But until next time, I'll talk to you all soon.